You know, one of the privileges of being in the philanthropic sector generally, I think, is that you get to spend most of your time and most of your day with people who are doing good things for good reason and for good purpose. Purposely Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. Everyone, welcome to Purposely with Bill Commode. Bill is the Chief Executive of the Next Foundation, a private foundation focused on innovative projects and initiatives, particular themes around education, the environment. It's deployed, it's a spend down foundation, so it's deployed close to $100 million worth of money. Bill is a proponent of strategic philanthropy, a real belief in it. He's passionate about it. We go into that in the podcast. He comes from the investment world. He carries that lens, focused on investing in private businesses, but now doing that in the philanthropy world. Enjoy the episode. Don't forget to share with friends, family, and colleagues. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, hit subscribe. Enjoy. Bill Kamode, welcome to Purposely Podcast. You're the CEO. In fact, you're the inaugural CEO of the Next Foundation. What's its vision? What's its mission? Next is a family foundation. It was created out of the generosity of a wonderful uh, New Zealand couple called uh, Neil and Annette Plowman, who had been doing things, been giving for quite some time, but wanted to do that in a more structured way. And really, when that when Next was set up by them and their trustees, they had an ambition to, for Next to leave a legacy of environmental and educational excellence for the benefit of future generations of New Zealanders. They wanted to show a way of giving that they hoped would be a model that some others would choose to follow and really to be to do their giving in what they perceived to be a business-like way. So they hoped to leave that legacy through that form of giving. Wonderful. And quite a private family? Very private. They had been... Um, uh, Neil and Annette had been, and their trustees actually had been giving money away and resources away for decades and initially anonymously. And it was only as a result of uh, some publicity around giving that they were doing in Abel Tasman National Park that they finally agreed with their trustees that they would put their name their name on it. And so from that time on became known uh, known givers to that Abel Tasman project, which still continues, called Project Yanzun. And then next was uh, really the the more structured and, and more explicit way of doing their giving. But again, you'll notice that uh, when I asked the founding trustees, uh, how they came up with the name next, the, 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 their first point that they made was, well, the, it was never going to be the Plowman Foundation. It was always going to have somebody else's name on it. And made their fortune from the laundry business effectively. As a child, I remember New Zealand Tail Services really well. <laughs> it just got etched in my brain. But it, that's where they made their, their fortune. Yeah, that's right. Well, look, people of my age and stage, uh, Mark, and maybe yours too by the sound of it, might know the white towels with the blue stripes that were in uh, a lot of public facilities and private facilities throughout the country. They were they were all serviced by uh, the company called New Zealand Towel Services and New Zealand Towel Supplies, NZTS. And Neil uh, was the chief executive of that company and they were the major shareholder of that business. And so that was 
the business that really generated the significant part of their wealth. They sold it in 1997 and then continued to invest well beyond that date. But NZTS was certainly the start. So founded in 1910 by George Plowman, went public, but then privatized by Neil in the mid 80s, which was a really smart move, right? It is quite a story, and that's right. Um, that it was founded by George, by Neil's grandfather. It was run by Neil's father. Neil was never going to work in the business. Uh, he was clear about that as a young uh, man. He trained and qualified as a pharmacist. And then when it came time for him to do his OE or his equivalent, he ended up working for a sister company to NZTS in Utah in the States. And that, uh, I guess what was maybe a working holiday at that stage, evolved into a couple of years' work. And by the time he came back to New Zealand, he was working for NZTS. And then it became a public company along the way. And Neil was the chief executive of it as a public company, but they left a management buyout in 1987, privatised the business, and then, as I said, went on and sold it in 1997. So there was a philanthropic, very much philanthropic genes in the family. Neil's father, and this was public, gave a gift of a million pounds to the Salvation Army in 1960. That was a massive gift by New Zealand philanthropic standards at that stage. And so Neil and his family were certainly brought up with uh, the philanthropic ethic. Wonderful. And so just focusing a bit on the, the next foundation, and $100 million was sort of the headline figure that has been committed over, you know, for a decade or more, launched in 2014, grant making, but also a significant partner or, or coordinator facilitator. How's it going? How's the progress going? Uh, yeah, well, look, it was set up in a way that's not unique, but but is not common, certainly in a New Zealand context, and that was as a, a fixed life foundation. So a 10-year foundation uh, uh, was set up, as you said, in 2014. So now in the back end of 2022, that makes us eight and a half years through that 10-year journey, and the financial expectation was that that $100 million would be committed in that 10 years, not all at, not all out the door by then, but certainly committed and knowing where it's going. So that spin-down model and the fixed-life model combined to make a relatively unusual beast in a New Zealand context, albeit those models, I think, are becoming more common. And so the name, and just in terms of the name, and then how we're going against the $100 million spin-down? <laughs> Yes, yeah, so the um, the name as a next. Uh, next came from uh, one of the trustees, Carol Campbell, walking on the beach, suggesting that at one stage, when it was a uh, when it was something that was still being thought about, the fact that in there was uh, some sort of connection to environment and education, which were the two areas, and that it, and that next it gave an indication of it being about the future, were all things that I think resonated for the trustees in terms of uh, the name, and so we have focused in those areas of environment and within the areas of environment and education essentially in terms of how we're going we're 
in a financial sense, about 80% of that $100 million has now been given away and some of the rest has been signed off by the board. And between the board and us, we've got a pretty clear idea around where the balance is likely to go in subsequent years. It'll end up being a little bit more than $100 million actually by the, by the time it's all gone. And that's been across about 25 organisations, of which we're currently supporting, continuing to support about 20. So, uh, you know, in in those senses, I, I think it's played out pretty much as the trustees set it up. There was always an expectation that there would be a relatively small number of organisations that would be supported on a multi-year basis with grants that in a New Zealand context were, uh, New Zealand philanthropic context were probably on the larger side rather than the smaller side. That was a gap within or a space within the philanthropic sector that it was seen that a new foundation might be able uh, to go to and that has proven to be the case in terms of what we've actually done. Yeah, and you were quite open at the launch around your, you know, projects didn't need to necessarily be a successful work. Um, you're going to try riskier, innovative projects. You were going to, you didn't want to be where other funders were. You didn't want to be replacement funders. Like it was quite a refreshed kind of strategy for a New Zealand setting. Yes, well, I think that being at that innovation end is certainly something that the trustees saw that um, uh, we should be. And if you look at the organisations that we've supported, particularly in the predator-free area, they have been, you know, what I think could accurately be described really as pathfinding organisations in terms of the way they've gone about doing things and in terms of what they've been doing. So particularly on that predator-free side, I think we've very much delivered on that. On the education side, we've got a mixture of organisations that uh, were startups like Talking Matters in the early years space through to organisations like Manaya Kalani and Springboard Trust that had been around for 10 years or more when we came up on the scene. Yeah. And kind of culturally, like, it, would it be fair to say there's some American influence, but it's quintessentially... Kiwi as well. There's definitely a sort of feels like a venture philanthropy type approach. Yeah, well, look, the ven- the venture venture philanthropy. I think that is fair and accurate, and it was in part why I had the great good fortune to end up in this role. Really, was I had had a, a previous life that was in private company investment and venture capital, and so that was the way the trustees were think were thinking about things. I would describe it as a business-influenced approach, I guess, rather than just an American approach. And, you know, we've certainly very much tried to do things in a New Zealand way. The fact is, though, that one of the points that you make is that there are, you know, spin-down models and fixed-life models. There are, you know, there are more of them, and they're probably more established in the States than they are here. So certainly... in terms of the model and that thinking, yes, it uh, was undoubtedly influenced by the US philanthropic scene. I'd like to think we operate in a New Zealand way, Mark. <laughs> and changing tact and looking at your career, because you talked about you know coming into the organisation, but looking back at your career, so you um, grew up in New Zealand, but you ended up doing a, a master's at Oxford Uni. 
Yes, I grew up in the Manawatu. I'm a proud uh, supporter of the Green and Whites, uh, even when they finished top of the bottom of the table. That's a rugby team, right? That's a rugby <laughs> team, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's a rugby team. And uh, yes, did chemistry at Massey University and then had the good fortune to get the opportunity to do a, a second undergraduate degree at Oxford. And I was able to do that in politics, philosophy and economics. So that was the start of widening my mind a little and um, or a lot. And so, uh, you know, then it, it, when I ended up back in New Zealand, I ended up having a career in the financial markets in one way or another, initially in uh, foreign exchange dealing, but then for the 20 years before I lucked into Next, really in uh, with a company called Direct Capital that was is a private company investor. And when I, as I, as I said, when the next uh, possibility came along, I was very lucky that the trustees were thinking about their giving in ways that were very aligned with the way we had at Direct Capital been supporting organisations in the private sector. Yeah. And while the outcomes are very different, that are being sought are very different and the measures are very different, really the processes and the thinking behind uh, what we're doing, I've really drawn uh, heavily on my experience at Direct Capital. And I really want to get into that in a minute. In terms of New Zealand has always been a small island at the bottom of the world and uh, still is. We're a very outward-looking nation, or I certainly have been. Were you sort of aware of the sort of gravitas or the opportunity you had to go to Oxford offered you? And then how much of what you learnt overseas sort of value, you know, brought you brought back to your career in, in New Zealand? And do you remember that time thinking this is a really amazing opportunity or was it more of a case of let's go and see Europe? Are you talking about when I, when I came back in, in, in my 20s or when I went to Next? Sorry. So, yeah, looking back in your 20s when you went off to, to London to Oxford University, were you aware of sort of the, the that was the, sort of the um, importance of that opportunity and what that might offer you? Yeah, well, look, look, it was a huge, uh, you know, for, for me personally, having been a bit of a study bug in the laboratory at Massey University, I, it was personally, it was just a wonderful opportunity for me to get some overseas, my overseas experience with, with a, tr a tremendous range of different people from and from different countries. So that was, the, you know, the massive eye-opener for me in terms of learning and in terms of, if you like, world views. And also, uh, you know, like most people going and doing their OE for the first time, I suspect, an eye-opener in terms of how much how, how big the world is and how small New Zealand is. New Zealand's got two massive advantages, I think, in that respect. One is... The fact that it is small in one corner of the planet means that I think a lot of us are brought up with a view that actually you've got to be looking out. You're not, it's, uh, if you're born in London or New York, it's a lot easier to think that you might be misled into thinking that you're living at the centre of the planet, whereas I don't think there's many of us in New Zealand that are under that that illusion. And the, and the second benefit that I think New Zealand's got is that it's it's rightly viewed as a pretty independent non-corrupt entity in an international sense. And I certainly, both at Oxford and in other experiences I had overseas, benefited from the fact that New Zealand's a fantastic brand overseas for people in terms of its integrity and in terms of its independence and in terms of its openness. So all of, all of those things, I think, make, make this a great place to have come from. And in your 20s, were you quite intentional about where you wanted 
your professional work to go. Were you thinking about kind of making the world a better place stuff back then? Do you, do you remember what your thought process was? I'd like to answer that with a yes, Mark, but I can't. I gave a talk at a, a tertiary graduation ceremony a couple of years ago and to uh, graduating students, and I, I said to them, you know, they were at a wonderful turning point in their lives, and I said, wherever you go next will be really important in terms of what you do, but it won't define you, and it won't define your life or your career. And if I, was I intentional about what I was doing in my mid-twenties, only to the extent that I knew what I liked and I got involved in things that I generally liked and thought were interesting. But I also said to the graduating group that if you looked at my career, it went, you know, as I said, chemistry degree, politics, philosophy, and economics, teaching, foreign exchange dealing, horse racing industry, private company investment, philanthropy. There is somebody who clearly had a lot of trouble working out what he was going to be doing and probably <laughs> wasn't very good at it along the way. But I can now talk to there being a reasonable coherence about, well, there was coherence about all of those steps that I took at the time. They were always doing things that I thought was interesting and I enjoyed. And now looking back at them, I can say there was a plan, but there wasn't at the time. What was the narrative at home? Like, what were, what were parents saying? Who were you trying? What was the driver? Who, who were you trying to impress? You know, I was very lucky that my parents were very supportive of having a go at stuff. So, and they, you know, like me, saw the the, the overseas opportunity at Oxford and, and what came after that is just a great learning experience. Um, so I think I took that from them. And I think I'm probably very lucky that they didn't have a defined view of what career I should be going into or whether, you know, job A was actually a better place to be than job B. My mother did worry about me when I was overseas to the extent that when I came back to New Zealand, she had organised me an interview with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and as part of their, I think, graduation graduate programme or so on. And I went down uh, there, had uh, went through the day's interview process, did get subsequently offered a job and said no because I got a job in foreign exchange dealing and which if it had been mum's choice, she would definitely have made the other choice, but they they were supportive of my choice. So Yeah. And so heading into more c commerce and you know, eventually into investment, was that sort of um, let's make as much money as possible or you just was it more of an excitement thing and feeling like your face fitted? Yeah, it was um it wasn't make as much money as possible, but it was it was make enough money to actually be able to survive because that was a stage I was at. My father was a teacher, my mother was a dental nurse. We had never felt that we were poor in our family, but we certainly weren't rich. So it was about, and there was an expectation that we would go and get a job. So it was about getting a job and getting paid. The, the foreign exchange choice was because it felt like it was really interesting work. I enjoyed maths. I enjoyed that element of it. I enjoyed that I went in as an analyst in my first job. I enjoyed all of those aspects. It was an intellectual challenge and it was an exciting area. Where I had luck was that a year after I started that job, David Longley, the Prime Minister, then floated the currency for the first time. And so 
the foreign exchange world completely changed at 12 months after I'd started and became enormously more exciting and unpredictable. So that was just luck. And I had a lot of fun for five or six years just working. Heading towards your position of you know, a founder of Direct Capital, how did that come about? What was sort of the origins of that opportunity? Yeah, luck again. I had been in Wellington working in the foreign exchange markets for five or six years. A guy who was at school with me, albeit a year younger, and we knew of each other rather than knew each other, uh, Ross George, came and talked to me about helping him raise a fund. And I knew people in Wellington that he didn't know as a result of me having been there for a few years. And by the time I'd finished helping him and another colleague, Mark Hutton, you know, raise that fund, I was becoming part of it and moving to Auckland. And this is the mid-90s? This was uh, 19, the, right at the end of 1994, yeah. And were there not a lot of other investors investing in this way? So this is, um, pri- you're investing in private companies, startup and scaling capital? Yeah, more um, mid-sized established businesses and mid-sized in a New Zealand context. So typically not startups. There were a couple subsequently, but really mid-sized established businesses, privately owned. And there were investments of that type being made, but there was no other organization at that stage that really only did that. So Direct Capital was really the first fund that was only doing that type of private equity in New Zealand. And now there are a large number of funds and a large number of advisors. At that stage, there were there were other families and uh, one fund which did that, but they also did other things too. So in that sense, we were new in a New Zealand context. We weren't new in an international context. We really took a model that existed overseas and applied it in New Zealand in a way that we thought would work. How was the journey? I imagine you made a few mistakes along the way. I imagine you guys learned a lot. Like, was there examples where that you, um, you know, early on, where you um, almost lost a shirt sort of thing? Yeah, well, look, we had our uh, come to Jesus moment about four or five years, four and a half years probably after that start. The cornerstone investor in that fund was uh, was AMP, and they uh, had a desire that the f- that direct capital be a publicly listed company, and so that first fund was a publicly listed company that was investing in private companies, as we've said. An external shareholder came in, bought a significant minority stake, and then subsequently made an offer for 100% of the company after about four years after we'd been starting. And at that stage, really, we as a management team were faced with a choice about whether or not we wanted to. We were given a choice in terms of whether or not we wanted to essentially slow the rate of investment and harvest some of the gains of those investments that have been made, or we wanted to continue to grow the future that we'd started developing in direct capital. And we had to do that essentially on our own or with our with our own funding. And we decided that we, w- we did want to invest in the future and create a, a second future for direct capital, and we're able to do that. But there was certainly a period of six months there where it was not at all clear whether or not there would be a future for direct capital or not. About 
keeping skin in the game, like motivation? Was that forefront of your thoughts? Yeah, well, look, we had skin in the game because we'd all given our all of what we had, both in terms of our own resource, personal reputations and money to that future, really. And we'd been doing that for four or five years. So there was no doubt that we were there. The question was over whether or not we'd be able to make it work or not. Uh, happily, we were able to. And, you know, not surprisingly, after talking the the story solidly for six years, really, by at that stage, given the year that we had spent developing the fund, we were believers. And happily, that's proved to be the case. And Direct Capital now is coming up 30 years on, is a thriving uh, organization with some fantastic people in it. Your investment thesis, like, did is that developed? Like, I'm just thinking in terms of how you, you know, do the due diligence, how you assess do you remember back then having, you know, it's got to be, it's all about the founder. It's about the driver, the founder, the focus of the founder. Data could be secondary. Like, did you build up a really set way of thinking about what a good investment was or did that evolve over that time? We definitely had um, a way of doing things in terms of how we were thinking about things and it definitely evolved over the years, as you would expect, with experience. But it was, you know, the founder role or the chief executive or the shareholder role was really a critical part of it. And one of the things about that first fund was that Direct Capital undertook that it would be only a minority shareholder in businesses. It wouldn't take majority shareholdings. And if you're taking a minority shareholding along what is typically a founder of the business, who is typically the chief executive of the business, who typically has a majority shareholding in the business, you better make sure you choose good partners because if you don't, there it's uh, there's pretty easy ways for the minority shareholder to, to miss out. So we had that top of mind, and I think part of Direct Capital's success in that first decade was that the partners that it chose to invest with were real partners and treated us that way, even though we were a minority shareholder and we were clearly a financial partner, not a not a not a in- industry partner. Did you? pivot to the board like did you you were in this day-to-day but your role changed as you looked to to leave or did you have you stayed connected to um to direct capital well i guess if it comes to board experience one of the great things about the direct capital role and experience was that we went on the boards of those private companies so each of us in direct capital had two, three, four, five private company boards that we sat on as part of the role. So it was a great place for getting um, board experience. When I left Direct Capital in 2014 to come to the next role, a lot of people thought that I was stepping back or stepping uh, or taking a step towards retirement in one way or another. I said to people, at the time, I said, no, this is a 100% role that I'm going into. And what I now say to people is I didn't realize how 100% uh, time-wise it would be. It's all-encompassing, but only because I choose that and because I think that the work that we do, that we can do it next is really meaningful. So as a consequence of that, you know, I pretty much, I, well, I, I stepped out of any formal connection with direct capital. They still invite me along to their biannual um portfolio company or uh, gigs which i very much appreciate yeah 
And another organisation you've had a yeah, significant amount of um, to do with is the is EHF. Tell us about how that opportunity came about, and it's the Edmund Hillary Fellowship. So the Edmund Hillary Fellowship is a is a wonderful initiative, initially by a couple of young American brothers and their friend who they had met at university in the states, an Ethiopian called uh, Yosef Ayili. They is the Monaghan brothers, is that right, Bill? Yes, the Monaghan brothers. Sorry, Matthew and Brian. And so they worked up in the end in partnership with the Department of Immigration a new visa category called the Global Impact Visa, which was about selecting people from around the world who want to work in New Zealand or come to New Zealand to deliver social outcomes. Some of them are social entrepreneurs, some of them are are social investors, some of them are change makers in the area that they're acting in. And the Edmund Hillary Fellowship comes with a global impact visa that puts these people on a three-year journey towards citizenship. And they ran, developed and ran a process of attraction and selection, which has attracted now uh, 526 incredible human beings to connect and or live in New Zealand and build their uh, their social venture, their social initiative through a New Zealand lens. And so I was introduced to Yosef initially early on in my next days and asked to join the board and it was the one thing that I said and did do outside of Next because I saw the mission for Edmund Hillary Fellowship as being so closely aligned with the Next mission that I was uh, happy to give my time to it. And um, I think that if you get the opportunity to go and have a look at the EHF website and see the ca- the caliber of those fellows that, that are sitting on that website and sitting in parts of New Zealand, I encourage you to do so. Uh, encourage people listening to do so. Just uh, uh, there's some there's some fantastic potential and capability and connections there. Yeah, and they really they really focus on the human, don't they? So it's the the, the idea that the person. We'll have a vision and a drive to do something good for the environment, for society. And actually their first, maybe their first venture is not the one, but by investing in the human story, we as a country will win. And um, so will there be some benefits globally as well? Exactly. It was a values-based selection process run by a guy called Andre Bate who led it, who uh, did a wonderful job. And it was very much about values, very much about mission alignment, and very much about New Zealand connection and New Zealand being a good place to develop that mission for them from. So some of them are significant financial investors and do have significant wealth, but a large number of them have no financial wealth at all, but are are completely aligned. So it was very much about selection on that basis, writing out a check. And so the next foundation opportunity, so did you apply for the role or like, how did that, how'd that come about? I'd love to hear that story. Uh, you know, another example, Mark, of uh, not having a plan, um, but luck. You know, if you can't if you can't be good, be lucky. Next Foundation was uh, launched by the then Prime Minister John Key in March 2014. 
And a number of people, uh, myself and my wife included, were invited along to the launch. We weren't told what it was going to be. We were just told that it was going to be an interesting announcement. What next was announced as a $100 million spend down. My wife and I were invited along just to uh, fill a couple of the seats that were there. I knew the chairman of the trustees, Chris Liddell, said after the event that they were running a process to look for somebody to lead. Next Foundation, and uh, I should have a look at it, that really they were thinking about somebody who had sort of investment experience of the type that I had that might be the sort of skills that they were looking for. I said, I don't think so. But a week later after mulling it, I rang him up and said, I've had a think about that. I'd have a look at it. What are your, what's the job description? He said, whatever you want it to be, which, is, <laughs> which was half true. Half true in that they'd set up the 10-year spend-down model environment and education and so on, but obviously they didn't know exactly where it was going to go in terms of the detail and the, and the process. And so... What changed in your mind in that week? You know, the purpose and the mission for the benefit of future generations of New Zealanders, environment and education, all of those things resonated for me. I came from a family that is really been involved in the education sector. My father was a teacher at Teachers College. My sister was a school principal, my wife's a teacher, and I grew up on a farm. So environment and education, uh, the future of New Zealand was a no-brainer for me. So I guess it was the, the mission that got me aligned. And Chris said to me, go and read a book called The Foundation, which is an easily readable manual for venture philanthropy, really, in the way that you described it earlier. And I did read it and went back to him and said, well, look, I recognized all of that because that's all the same stuff that you know we've been doing in our funds at Direct Capital. So it all made sense to me. And he said, I know, that's why we're thinking about the sort of skills for the job. And so... I went from that initial launch to six weeks later having a conversation with my partners of 20 years saying, I'm not surprised if you're surprised about this conversation because I'm surprised, but this is what I'm going to do. And to their credit and to my good luck, they were completely supportive of me jumping out. And shifting from that you know, monetary return first to purpose, social good, environmental impact, did it take you a little bit of time to adjust? Like, what was the, what what are the differences you came across? Like, in terms of your mindset and and how you approach things. One way I described that uh, to some people um, a year or two on was I said it was a bit like when you move to another country where maybe they still speak English, but everything's different. That's one way I would describe the change. Another way I'd describe it is that we were next, the trustees had already set up an expression of interest process for organizations for next. So I came in and really started leading that process from day one. So I said to people from, you know, for the first six months, I felt like I knew all the questions to ask, but the answers were all different to the ones I'd been getting for the previous 20 years. And so, yes, it's different. The fun, the biggest difference is around measurement. And so I'm in the commercial world and the financial world, there are well-established norms in terms of ways of measuring success or what is defined as success and well-established norms in terms of what they are and around the quantum of those sorts of things. So you've got a whole set of measurement parameters that, that you can sort of work in. In the for-purpose sector, that is nowhere near as well-defined nor as clear nor as developed. 
And so that's the biggest difference between the two sectors, the, the measurement, the evaluation, and the knowing whether or not you're actually contributing to is in line with the difference that you'd like to contribute to. That's the hard part in terms of this area. And that's the intriguing and that's the you know intellectually challenging part too. Yeah. And looking from outside, and I guess you suddenly had a whole lot of friends, like everyone across New Zealand would have been going, that Bill Commode, we must talk to him tomorrow. 100 million suspend down. That guy is the guy we need to speak to. At the same time, you've, You've really, from the look of it, surrounded yourself with some some really smart people to help you make decisions. Looking back to so that, those early few years of the foundation, how much of the sort of structure you set up and the way you sort of organise things turned out to be a strength? Because, yeah, not underplaying that kind of suddenly everyone's making the call to build. One of the bits of the of the half that the trustees had set up, they'd set up really well, and that was that expression of interest process or application process, if you like, that was essentially the first thing that I led for Next. They had a really good two-page application process that still sits on our website. It asked what I think were the right questions. It asked for them to be answered in no more than 150 words. And so that was a really good frame for being able to, if you like, deal with all of the incoming that you refer to. And that process was well conceived and I got the privilege of running it. We did it again in the second year and we didn't change anything in terms of the way we ran, we did that process except that we were a little clearer and more focused about what our areas of interest were because in the first process we just had environment and education. And when the third year came around, I said to the board, I don't think we need to run another process or should run another process. We'll get maybe 100 applications. We might find one or two organisations that we don't know about that'll be new that we support, but we will also say no to 98, and that's a hell of a lot of work that's been generated and expectation generated for them that's a negative that's associated with these sort of processes. So, you know, so I think that the way that process was set up was really good. And, the you know, the first question, and I guess the first question in my mind now with any organisation that's thinking about support from somebody like us is, you know, what is the need that you're looking to satisfy or to meet? And clarity and conciseness around expressing that need are a really strong indicator in terms of whether or not we might end up a potential partner or not for them. And has this role changed you as a person? Like if you are a nicer husband, <laughs> a better parent, like how much, has it changed you the uh, time? Yeah, well, you can. Uh, yeah, well, I'm not. The, I'm not the person to ask answer answer that question specifically. Has it changed me? Yes, it has definitely. You know, one of the privileges of being in the philanthropic sector generally, I think, is that you get to spend most of your time and most of your day with people who are doing good things for good reason and for good purpose, and so that's a. Uh, both a more uplifting and a hell of a lot better time way to spend your day than reading the newspaper. Has it made you more of an optimist? It's made me more appreciative of how much good there is in the world because we have the privilege of getting to see it every day. So it's made me much, got me a much deeper and better understanding of how the majority of people in the world are doing 
good things for good reasons, whether they're in for-purpose organisations or not. We deal, and we deal, a lot of our community that we know and have dealt with are in the business sector, and there are a lot of good people in the business sector who've been attracted to organisations like Next and others in the for-purpose sector for good reasons. So in that sense, I'm more optimistic about the world. In many ways, you're ahead of your time in, in some ways, but if you think about the, the big, B Corp movement, the sort of evolution or, or growth in for-profit companies who are also putting purpose alongside. It kind of brings me to an initiative that you are launching at the moment, the Centre for Strategic Philanthropy. Love to know about that. It feels like it's from your learnings over the last period of time with the Next Foundation? It's certainly a next step in terms of our Next Foundation. And you know, we was, uh, I mentioned earlier, and, and Next has always been pr- explicit about its interest in, in environment and education, but we've always had an interest too in being a model for strategic philanthropy in New Zealand. And we've tended not to be so explicit about that, in part as we were about environment and education, in part because I was very conscious at least for the first five years anyway, that we're complete newbies in terms of thinking about strategic philanthropy. And we needed to at least learn a bit before we started talking about others. I get people approaching us and we get people approaching us to ask how we're doing things and we share openly on that. So on an opportunistic basis, we've been hopefully supportive of others in terms of their strategic and philanthropic endeavours. But the Centre for Strategic Philanthropy is taking that to a level of being intentional about helping New Zealand individuals and organisations and families who want to do their giving in a strategic or a business-like way. So so the Centre is really a place for New Zealand givers with a strategic or business-like approach. It's a place for them to meet. It's a place for them to share. It's a place for them to learn. And if they so choose, it's a place for them to find opportunities to act. And so it's about bringing people who are of a like mind in terms of how they're thinking about their giving together to widen the conversations that they have. Like in a lot of sectors, I think in the philanthropic sector, particularly the fam- and maybe particularly the family philanthropic sector, the conversations aren't that broad in terms of how they're going about their giving. You know, very often families will talk, as you would expect, to trusted advisors. Trusted advisors are often lawyers or accountants or people with limited exposure to the for-purpose and the philanthropic sector. So the Centre for Strategic Philanthropy is a place where those people, be they the advisors or be they the givers or be they other people associated, can go and have those conversations with others who are in the same space. And scoping this, you saw a gap in the market, so there's there's not another organisation that is filling that at the moment? I think in an ideal world, Philanthropy New Zealand would fulfil that role in an ideal world. But Philanthropy New Zealand's got a very broad member base, much broader than just families. And it's got very broad objectives and it's got objectives that are linked to being the peak body and and at, at government and, and Wellington level as well. So it's pretty hard for Philanthropy New Zealand to cover all of those bases to the extent that it would like to. And so they have been very supportive of the centre because they've seen that it can be a vehicle for helping fulfil what is just one of the member bases that they would target. 
or that they're responsible for. And what sort of presence will it have just to, in terms of, you know, like, will it be attached to a university or will it have, have its own base or? There are centres for strategic philanthropy and like, and, and similar sorts of organisations in other parts of the world, as you, you would expect. A lot of them are attached to tertiary organisations, universities or other learning institutes. And they're not surprisingly have a bias towards uh, sort of education and research. We've seen this having a bias towards the practical and the execution side in terms of giving and being about how to and who to in terms of going about that. So we do see a partnership with the university down the track as being a sensible thing to do and a logical thing to do. But first of all, we need to find out whether or not there is demand from those family givers and individual givers for the sorts of offerings that the centre can make. If there is, then I would see a partnership with the university down the track being a logical thing. As to place, ironically, having described it as being a place, no, there isn't a building that the centre is based in. We've held events, we've held them in different places, we've held them at one of the families. It's not, Next has been the catalyst for the centre, but there are now five family philanthropics, of which Next is one of the five, that have been the founding funders for the centre. And one of the events that we held was at one of those families. Wonderful. As we look towards wrapping up, just a, a focus on on the future for next. You talked about it being a spend down, but will there be more capital? What were the the main areas areas of focus likely to be? Obviously, environment, education. You've talked about, and now spreading the word around good practice around philanthropy. But yeah, what what would you like to see to happen in the future? Next, we'll complete the ten year journey that we've always talked about. So that's twenty twenty four. And we will complete that journey in the way that it was envisaged pretty much on day one. An important part of that now, and the most important part now, is how with those organisations that we are currently supporting, we can help them get to a sustainable funding and other future. So that's really what we're working with all of those organisations that we currently support to help them get as sustainable a position post-next as, as they can. So that's the next journey. Beyond that next journey, Neil and Annette have more giving that they would like to do. Those conversations post-2024, in terms of cause areas, if you like, the one that is undoubtedly at the top of that, that list is climate and where from with a New Zealand lens on could contribute to making a tangible difference in the climate challenge that's undoubtedly the biggest issue that's facing this generation now. And in terms of your, your role in that, are you looking at your retirement with, <laughs> with Glee or are you, um, are you just getting started? Where are you on that spectrum? Uh, I don't think I'll retire. I might change the mix. I won't be the leader of uh, the climate initiative, but I may well be in the conversation. And I'm very committed to the Centre for Strategic Philanthropy being a viable long-term proposition. We would see that from a next perspective, uh, if you like. That's really an important part of the legacy that we would like next to leave. So, you know, both of those are significant angles for me. And there are other things in the for-purpose sector that if time allowed and opportunity arose, I'd love to get involved with. Bill Commode. Thank you for joining me on Purposely. 
Thank you, Mark. Thanks for your time and your interest. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do.